give your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. We've been studying the book of Romans uh, for a little bit now, and one of the great things about the book of Romans is it's like every, every time you read it, you just realize the genius of the Apostle Paul. Now, obviously, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's one of those books that just has so much depth to it. And every time you study it, there's more, there's deeper layers to it. And uh, it's, I just have a lot of fun studying and thinking and, and looking through the book of Romans. And I hope, I hope that you can have a little taste of that this morning as well. And I hope this series has been something that has encouraged you to spend time in the Word, to think about it, and to let the Word be something that saturates your mind. Last week, Lance preached on the first half of Romans 13 about the obedience that we owe our government, the the leaders of our uh, nation and and the authorities that God has put in place over us. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon, I encourage you to do that. You can check it out on our podcast. It'll be there. Listen to it. And uh, this week, we're going to continue that theme of what we owe by looking at what we owe to one another as Christians. So the beginning half is about what we owe as Christians to the government, and this week is about what we owe as Christians to one another. And the thing that we owe one another is love. We owe one another love, which might sound kind of strange. We don't often think about love as an obligation, but I I hope if we pay attention to this text, we'll see exactly what Paul is getting at. Let me read for us Romans chapter 3, verses 18 to 14. You can follow along on the screens above. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would bless us, that it would stir us up to love and good deeds, and that it would comfort us with the truths of the gospel. And we do pray that you would not leave us unchanged, but through your word and by your spirit, you would grow us in Christ-like love. We pray also in Jesus' name. Amen. One common criticism I hear about the church is that it lacks love. And I think, sadly, this criticism often rings true. 
Christians can be pretty nasty to one another. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. It's been very hurtful. Maybe you've been on the giving end of that, and you've hurt someone. You've been unloving. And we are called as Christians to be marked by love. Love is what signifies who we are to one another and and to the world. But some other times, I'm not quite sure that we understand the kind of love the church is supposed to demonstrate. If if someone has that criticism of the church, I wonder, how would you define love? if, if, If the church didn't lack love, what would the church look like? And sometimes, what people are saying is love is really coddling, or at worst, enablement, or a a vague sense of niceness. But that is not the kind of love that we're called to embody. I'm always struck, in Romans 12, Paul says this, he says, let love be genuine. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, which assumes what? That there's a kind of love that is not genuine, a counterfeit love, an insincere love. I think God gives us this command because he understands that we are prone to false love. You think about even the Apostle Paul writing this. This is the guy who, if you read Paul's letters, he's spending most of his ministry convincing the churches that he really does love them. And the people they think love them actually are just flattering them. That's most of his ministry. We're studying 1 Corinthians in our Bible studies and in our college group, and it's amazing. Paul writes chapter 13, and it's about love. This is the guy who wrote the chapter on love. But you've got to imagine some of the angry emails he got, right? And he's like, you guys should have excommunicated this guy a long time ago. What's up with this sexual immorality? What's, what's your relation with money like? What's that revealing about you? He even mocks them for their hyper-spirituality. Not to mention the whole thing about head coverings. What is that about? You can imagine that Paul received his fair share of criticism for not being loving. You think about Paul being like a parent and the church's are like his little kids. And you, you know, you, sometimes you'll see a kid have a tantrum in a supermarket, hypothetically, if that ever happens. You know, and it's like, they're crying. Why? Because you, didn't, you don't want to give them ice cream for dinner. You don't want to buy all this candy for them. And they're like, you don't love me. <laughs> and you're like, what are you talking about? My whole life I devoted to you. I don't sleep because of you. Right? Of course I love you. And I can imagine Paul feeling that. I mean, he talks about the anxiety he has over the churches, the deep love he has for the churches. He's like, you guys keep me up at night. Of course I love you. But I will not flatter you because I love you. You think about Jesus. Jesus had great compassion for people, loved the least of these, cared for people that everybody threw out. And yet he had a forceful personality. He said, if you don't want to follow me, then leave. I'm going to go about my business. And Jesus said very hard sayings. And when the crowd thinned, he said, that's sometimes what happens. And I remember talking to a friend of mine. He was very honest. He was just like, man, I don't think I love people well. Or like at all. 
And I sat there, I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's, I kind of feel like I don't love people well either. When you really think about the kind of love that's genuine, do I love people or do I love the way people make me feel? Do I love people or do I love being seen as a person who loves people? You know, we say, oh, that person's so full of love. What if they're just an extrovert and nice to people? Is that the kind of, I mean, what, what, are we, what are we actually talking about here? Do you listen well or do you like being seen as a person who listens really well? Do you nod your head and go, I'm listening quite well in this moment. I hope they notice. And we think about it and it's just like, man, we are very prone to self-deception in this. But love must be genuine. No posturing, no pretense, no humble brag. Love just seeks the good of others, regardless of feelings or perception or, or even reciprocation. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. He says, you know, you might die for a righteous person. You might. You might give your life for a good person. But who dies for sinners? Of course, who does die for sinners? Christ. That's the kind of love he has, a genuine love. And we want anything but that kind of love. We want theater. We, we want sentimentalism. We don't want this kind of love, the devastating burden and discipline of Christ-like love. And yet that is the model. That is the kind of love Christ shows to us. Pure, true, faithful, genuine. But here's the good news. You have to realize the weakness of your own love to recognize the beauty and the power and the magnitude of the love of Christ for you. I mean, it's incredible. And it should humble us so that we realize the grace of God. Christ died and rose again, not just to free us from sin, but free us to a life of love, of Christ-like Love. And it is this love that marks the church. And I think Paul gives us some instructions on how we can embody that love. There's three points I think Paul gives us. First, we must commit ourselves to the Word of God. If you want to embody the love of Christ, you have to commit yourself to the Word of God. Second, you have to put off the works of darkness. And finally, you have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit yourself to the Word of God. Put off darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at these first few verses that call us to commit ourselves to God's Word. I mentioned earlier that love and obligation sound like opposites. Love should be free and spontaneous and maybe even irrational. But to think of obligation, to think of owing somebody love feels forced. It feels fake. It feels like it's not real. And yet Paul says, you don't owe anything to one another except this one thing. You must love each other. And he uses debt language, which is strange. But I want you to think about the parallel he's making. When you owe something to somebody, when you have a debt, it doesn't matter how you feel. It is demanded of you. You must pay it, regardless of how you feel. And Paul stretches this further. If love is the debt, so to speak, that we owe one another, it never ends. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. And so the call to love is eternal. It is continual. It will never fade. We are called to love, and we owe it to one another to love. 
But we can't love unless Christ first loved us first, right? Unless Christ first loves us, we can't love. Paul is dealing with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians getting along with each other. He's writing to the Romans. These two people groups are smashed together, and now he's got to teach them how to live with each other. But Paul doesn't say, love one another so that you will be united in Christ. That at the end of loving each other, you will finally achieve this unity in Christ. He does it backwards. He says, you are united in Christ, therefore love each other. The call to love comes after 11 chapters of dense theology, reminding them who they are. This is an objective reality. You are already united in Christ. In other words, for this church thing to work, it requires the power of the resurrected Christ. It is a theological reality before it's a practical reality. It is a work of divine, sovereign grace before it can be anything that we do. God has done this. He has made one new man out of two. He has joined us together, grafted us together as the body of Christ. You are in Christ together. Therefore, live like that's true. Express that theological reality with practical love. It doesn't matter whether you feel like you're united to your Jewish Christian brother or your Gentile Christian brother. You are. And because you are, you owe them love. You must love them. Love is an obligation. Marriages are built on vows and not feelings for a reason. Because our feelings fluctuate. But what do vows do? They stay intact. They're objective. They're pillars for when we fluctuate in our feelings and in our conflicts and our tensions in a, in a marriage. But vows also bring clarity. You're not committing to love your husband or your wife, in some vague, ill-defined way. But for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health, to death do you part. It's a specific obligation to specific things. There is a clarity in the vows. And in the same way, God gives us clarity in the kind of love that he calls us to. What are we committing to when we say we will obey Christ in love? And he gives us, or Paul quotes some of the Ten Commandments. He gives us God's law. Why? Because the law of God is meant to guide us to a life of love. That's why he says, love fulfills the law. Love is the end goal. Love is the, the whole sum of the law. And more specifically, what he says here is loving your neighbor as yourself, seeking the good for your neighbor as you would seek the good for yourself. That's the ethic. And you're not going to understand this if you think it's all about you. Paul is using the law of God to draw us out of ourselves into the life of others and to think about our neighbor as ourself. And God's law is good and holy. And that means it is the wisest and most blessed way to live. So to commit ourselves to obey the law of God is, is to commit ourselves to his wisdom and his vision for good. And that informs the good that we seek for other people. And when you think about the law, what, is it, what does it command us with regard to our neighbor? It commands us to preserve for our neighbor the things that make life worth living, the good stuff of life. 
Don't commit adultery. Why? Because it shatters the gift of marriage and that most sacred bond in your neighbor. Don't murder. Why? Because that cuts off the gift of life. It ends the very thing that God has given as a gift. Don't steal or covet. You think about stealing, you're, you're violating somebody's livelihood. You're taking from their domain. If you, if you ever meet someone who has experienced burglary or had their car broken, their home broken into, you, you'll talk to them and they'll express a sense of violation. My domain has been violated. Something has been taken from me that is meaningful. And he says the other commandments point this out too. Don't slander. Don't bear false witness. Why? Because when you slander, you kill someone's reputation that they need to survive in the world. You desecrate their integrity and their honor. And to sin against your neighbor is to sin against the God in whose image your neighbor is made. Now, God would not give us the law if he didn't know a little bit about our hearts. He knows that we need our vision corrected because our hearts are curved in on themselves. That's what Augustine talks about. Our our hearts are self-focused. You think about, you know, if you have a bike and its, its bars are misaligned or bent. If you think you're pointing forward, you're actually veering off. Paul says that our hearts are like that. They're bent. We think we're going forward. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, but really you're veering off into a ditch. And the law of God is realigning our handles and saying, this is the straight path. I'm trying to correct you from the way that you are naturally inclined to go. So you'll know if you've committed yourself to the law of God and to the word of God if you find it difficult. If you find that it provokes you and challenges you and in some ways makes you uncomfortable because God is aligning us. God is correcting us. C.S. Lewis, he's a great quote. He says that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. God does not coddle or flatter us. He loves us. And what may feel hard is actually his deep, deep, deep kindness and grace and love for you. He shatters every illusion of our own goodness with his law and then builds us up with mercy and grace. And for the Christian, the law is no longer a judge. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law can never condemn you again. The law is now a guide. It is the house rules of God's newly adopted children to disciple us in the discipline of love. It is a guide and not a judge. And this law leads to love, and our love fulfills the intent of the law. So commit yourselves to the word of God, and specifically to the commands of God. But you must also cast off the works of darkness. That's the second point. Cast off the works of darkness. Sounds kind of hokey. Sounds like Harry Potter or something, like you're casting off the works of darkness. Sounds kind of strange. But don't let that fool you. Paul is talking about spiritual realities. 
Scripture divides history into two ages. There's a, there's a timeline. There's the present age of darkness, and there's a future age of righteousness. There's an age of nighttime and an age of daytime. There's an age of darkness and an age of light. And what happens in the gospel, what happens in Christ, is that Christ comes and he brings that future age of righteousness into the present age of darkness so that there's an overlap in the ages that we live in. There is darkness, but there's also the dawning of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet complete. This is why Jesus, when he's casting out demons in Matthew 12, 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why is he casting out all these demons? He's demonstrating there's an invasion. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a force of righteousness, of God's kingdom that has broken into the present order and is changing things as evidenced by Jesus' healings and his casting out demons and his teaching. And we too in Christ have been transferred, this is Colossians 1, have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are people in Christ of this future age of righteousness living now in the present. Now what does this mean for us? It means that we must read the Bible sideways. It is an unfolding story. It is a story that is going somewhere. And this is why Paul commands us to know the time. It's a timing issue. We have to find our place in the large story that God is telling in human history. It's not just about our individual lives and testimonies, but God's work of redemption in the world. And we live in a particular stage in God's plan in which the kingdom has been inaugurated but is not yet complete. If you think about a president, he gets inaugurated, but it takes years for his policies to unfold. It doesn't all change at once. And in the same way, Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but the kingdom comes gradually, like Jesus says, like leaven through bread, like a mustard seed that becomes a tree, or like the slow rise of the morning sun. That's what happens. We live in between the two comings of Christ. Christ's first coming is dawn breaking, that first morning light. That's Christ's first coming. And when the day is fully upon us, that is the second coming of Christ, when everything is fulfilled. And that second coming of Christ is what Paul refers to here when he says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The day is closer than the night. It's closer to morning than it is to midnight. As each day goes by, the return of Christ, that final salvation. Salvation is referred to in a broad sense. Here, it's not referring to you being saved the moment you believed, but the totality of it. Romans 8, talking about one day our bodies will be redeemed, and all of creation that's in bondage to corruption and decay will be freed and released. He's talking about that final completion of God's work. We're still awaiting that. And he says that's the bright hope, that's the bright morning, that's the bright daytime that we're waiting for. And as each day goes by, we're closer and closer to that moment. So Paul doesn't just go back to what Christ did to motivate our obedience. He he points to what Christ will one day do. And this timeline informs how we ought to live. I have this special alarm clock. It's, uh, it's, uh, what it does is it'll simulate daylight, you know, and birds chirp, and it just kind of gently escorts you into the day, right? It just wakes you up and you feel great. 
But what it does is, before it reaches its maximum light, it begins with this dim, orange-red kind of light, about a half hour before you're supposed to wake up, before your alarm's set. And the idea is that it subconsciously prepares your body to wake up. So that when you finally do wake up, it's not jolting, it's just it's kind of a natural progression. And I think Paul is talking about this. It's, the kingdom of God is broken through. It's just this dim light that's slowly growing. And Paul is saying, prepare to wake up. Prepare yourself for the full day that's coming. Prepare yourself for the kingdom of God that will fully be here one day. That's why he says, it's time. You know the time. Prepare to come awake. And specifically, what does that mean? What does it mean to prepare to come awake? It means cast off the works of darkness. And he's like, in case you want a list, here's a list. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual morality, sensuality. These are often associated with the nightlife, right? Things full of shame, shrouded in darkness. He says, you got to put those away. And you know, he talks about sensuality, being led by your emotions. And I think about that. I'm like, I feel like today everyone says, do what you feel. And also, we're all emotionally messed up, which sounds like a terrible combination. But, but he says, no, living by the passions of your lusts and your flesh and your desires is slavery. And it is a work of darkness. Put those things away. That's not the, the time of that is passing. The time of darkness's reign is passing. But you can avoid the nightlife and you can still participate in works of darkness. Because he says, here's another work of darkness. You ready? Quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling and jealousy. These are not junior varsity sins. But James 3, it says that these things, jealousy and selfish ambition and quarreling, they are earthly unspiritual and demonic. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Are you full of bitterness towards someone else? Is there a quarrel? Is there jealousy? Are you consumed with envy? He says that's a work of darkness. As much as drunkenness and orgies and sexual morality, all these profane things. These are respectable sins. And God says, no. Their darkness. Put it off. Turn away from those sins. We go, what if, what if I put it off, I put off these sins, and then I sin again? Put it off again. Yeah, but what if two weeks from now I sin again? What do I do then? Put it off again. As long as the light of Christ is shining, as long as the day is coming, there is always a chance to turn. There is always mercy available to you. And just as God's kingdom is gradually dawning, so also our growth in Christ is gradual. Painfully so. It's slow. It's difficult. There's steps backwards. We all, we all feel that. But that's why we need this reminder. Keep putting off those works of darkness. Put them off. The world of darkness is passing away. Get with this new program that's happening. Put off those works of darkness. But it's not enough just to put off darkness. You have to replace it with something else. You put off in order to put on. 
You put off the works of darkness to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the final point in verses 13 to 14. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul describes it as walking properly as in the daytime. Walking properly as in the daytime. So if you wear pajamas at night, that's normal. If you wear them to work the next day, you're fired. (laughs) You recognize that that is not appropriate to the time of day. And Paul's saying sin and darkness is not appropriate to the daytime, to the kingdom of God. It is appropriate. It's par for the course in a world of darkness. But you don't belong to that anymore. You've been brought into the kingdom of light. So put those things away. And it's important to recognize, he doesn't say, put off the darkness so that daytime will come. He goes, daytime has come. The day is dawning, therefore put off the darkness. It's always the work of grace first. And our putting off is a response. God has already brought the light in Jesus Christ. Again, by his own sovereign initiative, without us. And we, in response to that, we go, now that you've brought us into light, let's live like light. And part of living like light is casting off darkness, but also pursuing righteousness. Don't just avoid darkness, but pursue light. Don't just avoid adultery, but honor your neighbor's marriage. Pray for each other's marriage. How's everything going? Do you need, do you need me to encourage you? Do you, need, do you need somebody to talk to? How can we encourage the glory and the gift of marriage for one another? Don't just avoid theft, but give to those in need. How can I be generous? How can I bless people? Don't just avoid slander, but build up others with your words. How can I not only take away from people's reputation, how can I bolster it? How can I speak well of others? How can I see see the best in other people? Don't just avoid murder, but create life. Physically, create life. Spiritually, create life. Make your home a place of life, the church a place of life, your workplace a place of life and joy. Don't just avoid coveting, but be grateful, not only for the things that God has given you, but for the things that God has given to others. That's the hard one. To bless God for blessing other people, especially if they have what you want. Don't fight evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on means it's a command. And it assumes that this is an act of the will. It's not a spontaneous reality that just flows out of you. Your eyes roll in the back of your head, and you're just like, I'm super moly and doing stuff just without thinking about it. This is an act of the will. You know, Paul in Philippians 2, he says, God, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work. So your choosing and your acting is not in competition with God's power. In fact, it's God's power, it's God's grace that enables you to make these choices, that enables you to walk in obedience to him. So it's all by grace, but it requires a choice. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. If you have a chance to read this later and really meditate on it, I think it'll be very fruitful for you. But I want to give you the highlights of this. In in Colossians 3, he says, this is what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three things. First, you have to adopt 
the mindset of Christ, adopt the, the character and the virtue of Christ, grow in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Right? Seek those things. Set that as your mind. I want to be somebody who exemplifies these traits. But second, you have to act that character out in specific ways. And he lists two examples. Forgive one another and bear with one another. It's easy to be like, I like thinking about being compassionate, kindness, humility. I like posting about that. It's a nice thing to talk about with people. And it's like, all right, great. Now step two, forgive that person you're bitter against. Pass. Bear with one another who annoy you. I don't want to do that. Right? That's where the rubber meets the road. He says, don't just think about it. You've got you to gotta do it. And third, Paul instructs us in Colossians to take hold of the resources God has given to us, to strengthen us in this work, to strengthen us in grace. He says, you want to grow in Christ-likeness? You want to grow in putting on Christ? Here's a practical way to do it. He says, let the Word of God dwell richly in you. Let the Word of God dwell richly in you. Read the Word. Pray the Word. Hear it preached. Sing the Word. And he says, teach, admonish one another. Challenge each other to Christ-likeness. And then he says, sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. And then be thankful in everything you do in your life and honor God and what you do in your life. It's actually pretty ordinary. There's no ritual. There's no mystic kind of guru that's teaching you this. It's just believe the word, do the word. Do it all for God's glory. This is bread and butter Christianity. You know, G.K. Chesterton, he once wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I love that. Most of the issues we face in our lives is not due to lack of information, right? It's lack of application. But Paul knows that. That's why he's saying, look, I know you're sinners. I'm a sinner too. We need this reminder. Put off darkness. Put on Christ. Put on the mindset of Christ. Put on as Paul says, the armor of light. All the lofty theology of prayer and sovereignty means nothing if we don't pray, right? And all of the cutting cultural critique means nothing if we ourselves are not putting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light and putting on Christ. And when is the best time to put on armor? Before the battle, right? You don't want to be all cut up and realize, I should have packed a shield, This is something that is preemptive. Put on the armor because you're going to go into temptation and trials and hostility. Some of you might be fighting naked and you're wondering why you're having a difficult time fighting sin and and fighting temptation and all these different things. This is what we do Sunday after Sunday. Why do you come to church? Why do we worship? It's putting on armor. It's singing and praying and hearing the word and taking the Lord's Supper and talking one another and seeing how each other's going and loving each other and serving each other so that we have the armor of Christ so that when we go into the workplace, when we deal with that difficult relationship, when we deal with the child that has wandered away from the faith, when we deal with the dysfunction in our families and all the, all the things that make up the trials of our lives, when we deal with that, we have the armor on and we can walk properly in the day. We need this. And we can only put on Christ if we also cut off provisions for the flesh. He says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's interesting language. Paul, you know, you think about what is provision? Provision is when you plan beforehand 
for something else. So if you think there's going to be a famine, you make provisions of food. If you think there's going to be a financial downturn, you make provisions of money. And Paul's saying, don't have that mindset with sin. Don't plan ahead for sin. Don't squirrel away a little fund of sin for a rainy day. Cast it off. What is feeding your sin? You can't feed your sin and then you know, work it out later with religious activity. If you run every day, but you also have provisions of copious amounts of Chick-fil-A, it's going to be counterproductive, right? And he says, make no provision for the flesh. Be honest. Did I, was that offensive with the Chick-fil-A thing? Well, you, we say Arby's. We'll say Arby's. <laughs> but make no provision. And he's asking for brutal honesty. Where are areas in which we are making provision for the flesh? Is it in our media consumption, the people we listen to, the way we speak to one another? You know, are there relationships in our lives that are not helping us follow Christ? These are the honest questions we have to ask. Are we making provision for the flesh? Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Flesh is referring not, not to your physical body, but, but to the... To, to the the sin that lurks within you, the sin nature that still remains. He says you got to starve it and then replace it by feeding righteousness, feeding Christ-likeness, by letting the Word dwell in you, by singing, by praying, by doing the things that God calls us to do. This is how it works. So if we commit ourselves to God's law and we put off the works of darkness and we walk properly in the daylight by putting on Jesus Christ... This is how we grow gradually, imperfectly, but steadily into a church of genuine love for one another. But this is important. This is not something we coast into. Churches don't split overnight. They aren't consumed with bitterness and pettiness and infighting overnight. We are not immune to this happening to us. It's the accumulation of a thousand little works of darkness. It's the accumulation of not putting on Christ week after week, year after year. That's what destroys. But God, we have not even begun to realize the magnitude of God's grace to us in Christ. It's like trying to Scoop up the ocean in a plastic cup. You know, God wants to bless us more than we want to receive. And so when he calls us his love, he's calling us to blessing. He's calling us to the good life. And this isn't just be a better Christian. No, he's saying be who you are. Be who I've made you. God is doing something in history and we get to be a part of it. This is really happening. There really is a second coming. There really is a kingdom. And we get to be a part of that. And we get to start today, now, with the people sitting around you. And then your community and your neighbors and your families, your coworkers. And this is hard. And we need to remind each other as we struggle through the trials of life and our own weaknesses and the sins that are always dogging us that the dawn is breaking. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep encouraging. Keep reminding each other. Hey, put off that darkness. Put on Christ. I get it. I, I sin that way too. I get it. Hey, you're not weird. You're not a freak. Put off. Put on. 
The gospel is true every day, every moment. It's for you. Let's just keep reminding ourselves. Keep diving into that. Don't give up. The sun is rising. The day is coming. And salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That's the hope. That's our anchor. And hopefully, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we just keep grasping that anchor as it pulls us forward.